Welcome to Best Served, a podcast recognizing unsung hospitality heroes. Join Chef Jensen Cummings as he chops it up with industry leaders about the humans who've impacted their lives and careers. From childhood guides, to ass-kicking mentors, to the team members in the trenches that make it all happen. Help us celebrate these rock stars by sharing our show and nominating your own unsung hospitality heroes. Connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. Now here is your host. What's up, podcast? It's Corey from Best Served. This podcast is a clubhouse recording called Foods That Represent Your Heritage. Join In the Weeds and Best Served as we talk about the power of food as a way to celebrate our cultural heritage. Listen to the stories of people behind the food and how their history and family guide what's on the plate. Hope you enjoy. So welcome, everybody. Andrea, there you are. See you. To Food That Represents Your Heritage. Really exciting room we're going to have today because uh, this is the kickoff of something special we're going to talk about in a few different ways today so excited about this opportunity to speak with all of you i want to make sure and announce to everybody we are recording this room so be aware of that this room run for about an hour maybe up to an hour and 15 minutes if we're all vibing together on this uh, incredible topic and this recording will be available so please pop back in if you got to uh do anything will be on for a little while but then this recording will be available friday at 12 p.m eastern time on the best served podcast uh you can find that on anchor google apple anywhere you get your podcast so you'll be able to uh, relive these moments and yeah i just want to take a moment thank uh thanks here kelly and food nerds hq for uh for hosting us in the club today uh, always love the conversations and the community that's built in here and please, as we start get going, definitely ping people in the room, hit that plus sign, and get anybody and everybody who needs conversation, who can contribute to the conversation around heritage and the foods that represent them, uh, please do so. And uh, we'd appreciate that and get some great people into the room. Kunzi, I see you're here as well. All right, little, uh, little rundown. So how to bring your heritage to the plate. This is uh, an important topic to so many in the culinary world, especially to chefs. And really, it is a representation on the plate of, of who we are and so much of family legacy and heritage and culture, ingredients and techniques are, are passed down. And this is an opportunity for us to be able to, to celebrate those and share them. So and this is the kickoff to uh, In the Weeds meeting menu campaign. So absolutely check out Besser Podcast and In the Weeds. You'll hear more about that everywhere we kind of put out content. Uh, you're going to be seeing video casts, audio, clubhouses, articles, Instagram takeovers, all focusing on this idea of the menu meeting. And, uh, and we'll, we'll get into that a little bit more as we kind of get going. Uh, just a little bit of a breakdown. Uh, we're going to do very quick intros to speakers here in a moment. We're going to hear from L. Jarvis, who is the founder of In the Weeds and a nonprofit partner of ours. We're going to hear from the speakers, kind of their high-level thoughts on heritage, and then we're going to hear some stories from each of the speakers on foods that represent their heritage. We will open up hand-raising to the audience at certain points. Love to hear uh, little short stories of your own or asking questions, interacting with the speakers. Please, please, we want this to be communal. Uh, we'll also probably have some popcorn conversations on some topics and bounce around between the speakers, open forum uh, as well. And definitely anybody who's up on stage here, check out their bios. Some really incredible 
movers and shakers, thought leaders uh, in the industry. So please check out their profiles. Follow them here on Clubhouse. Uh, if you're listening on the podcast, make sure and, uh, and check them out. We'll drop some uh, handles and stuff on where to follow them as well. So, yeah, I just want to get uh, uh, introductions to the speakers real quick. Just like to let everyone just speak for a moment uh, before we get into everything so that we kind of know who we're going to be hearing from. So, uh, real quick, 30, 46 seconds, uh, just kind of who we are and, uh, and the work that we're doing. So I'll, I'll go first. Jensen Cummings, I'm based out in Denver, Colorado, founder of Best Served. We have a media side, Best Served podcast, and then we do a lot of education, strategy, consulting, just trying to disrupt and build new models that usher in workplaces worth working and, and really highlight the humans that make hospitality possible. And uh, you'll find us everywhere, as I mentioned, video casts, articles, clubhouses, memes in Facebook groups, any way that we can communicate with the hospitality industry and uh, be able to amplify the worth and work of those who feed their community, you will find us there. And this type of conversation highlights that to the nth degree for us. So important uh, to think about, you know, the heritage that sets the tone for who we are as individuals, as teams, as an industry, as food people. So just going to go around uh, the horn here, Knight, if you want to unmute your microphone. And uh, we see the little, uh, the little, I don't know, celebration icon, which means this is your first time on Clubhouse. So we're really grateful that you trusted us to come on here and speak with us for a while. But Knight, if you want to just give your very quick intro. Oh, yeah. Hey, this is pretty cool. Yes, it's my first time. Um, hello, everyone. My name is Knight. Um, I'm the chef owner of Nyambai. We're out here in Oakland. Um, we've been around for almost five years. Um, hard to believe, but Nyambai is a Cambodian restaurant that celebrates Cambodian culture, culture through um, Cambodian pop music from the 60s and 50s. Um, that's pretty much it. That's great. I absolutely Love that uh, Cambodian culture and cuisine is having a having a stay. And the fact that you've been here five years and we're just meeting is a travesty that I'm so glad that we have uh, rectified now. Uh, Elle, if you want to give a, a quick intro to yourself. Yeah. Hi, everyone. My name is Elle Jarvis. I am based in Boston, Massachusetts. I am the founder of In the Weeds, which you'll hear more about here shortly. And uh, pre-pandemic, I was a brand consultant for very large brands activating in the culinary space for loyalty rewards. But when the pandemic started, um, I started cooking again. So I've been, you know, uh, hosting pop-ups and dinner parties all over New England for the past year or so, uh, which has been super fun to get back to the, the roots. So many people started cooking again. So many people realized how fun it is and how unbelievably difficult it could be. So appreciate that for sure. Uh, Katie, jump in here. Tell us. Uh... Hi, everyone. I'm Chef Katie Chen. I'm an award-winning cookbook author. My fifth cookbook just came out in June. Katie Chen's Global Family Cookbook. I also own and operate a catering business in Los Angeles called Walkstar Catering, specializing in modern Asian cuisine. And uh, because of the pandemic, I uh, 
obviously had to pivot. So I uh, have taught over 175 virtual cooking classes um, on my own and through a company called Hungry that distributes um, cook-along kits to the participants. But then I also started um, a live streaming show with my daughter during the pandemic called Cooped Up Cooking with Katie and Becca. So we do a live streaming show every Sunday at five o'clock, live stream to Instagram and Facebook. So it's been a challenging time, but also uh, super fun. And thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Andrea, go ahead and jump in. Unmute your microphone and tell us where you're at and uh, what you're working on. Hey, everyone. My name is Andrea. I am the chef founder of Four Directions Cuisine, which is an interpretive elevated indigenous cuisine catering company based here in Denver, Colorado. I've uh, been here in Denver operating that business for about three plus years now uh, and had a year or two uh, in Wisconsin, the uh, first version of that business. Um, yeah, my first time here as well in Clubhouse on a, uh, on a panel discussion. So looking forward to it. Happy to be here with all of you. Yeah, Andre, we're going to get you into a lot more of these as, uh, as best served. And Andre, are really working to bring some uh, indigenous stories to the forefront and actually uh, plug, make sure on uh, on November 12th, you make it uh, over to the uh, Good Food for Good, the club from James Beard Foundation, because we're going to be uh, focusing all on indigenous uh, peoples and foodways. So I'm excited about that as well. Uh, Quincy Pham, and please tell me if I pronounced your name wrong. Uh, jump in here. Hi, that was perfect. Um, my name is Quincy, and I have a boutique advertising and marketing agency that focuses on multicultural experiences. Um, I have been in the marketing and advertising and communication space for over 20 years. Um, and food is so, so important to all cultures as an experience, as part of storytelling, as part of gathering. And so it has been a major focus um, when we strategize for any of our Fortune 500 brand clients, um, including spirits um, and luxury and hospitality. So it is also a great hobby of mine um, because it is what I think about all day, every day, and how I will implement it into my life, not only in my career, but through travel and through reading and strategies and messaging um, for our clients. So it is something that is very near and dear to my heart. I am Vietnamese American. Um, I grew up in Iowa by way of Vietnam as a refugee um, and then grew up in Southern California. And now I live in Hollywood. So these places have such an intricate story and foundation of why food and culinary are important to people's lifestyles. Um, growing up in the Midwest, then moving to Southern California and having culture shock and now living in Hollywood where you can go anywhere um, in, you know, half a mile and you can go to Little Italy or Little Tokyo or K-Town um, or Thai Town or Little Armenia and try the best foods. So I think that this topic is so, so important in not just representing our heritage, but looking at like how food connects cultures um, by way of food and fusion as well. So that's my take on it and my background. So thank you. And uh, I really appreciate being part of this. Lindsay, we got to talk because I'm from Southern California and 
went to Iowa to work at my uncle's, have like five restaurants there. So I had culture shock in the reverse. We'll have to offline that conversation because I'm sure we can swap some, uh, some stories there. Appreciate that. Uh, Chef Amira, uh, jump in. And by the way, I got to say, your uh, profile pic is the most swagged out of anybody. So congratulations on that. I feel like now I need to up my game. Uh, really rock. <laughs> Well, thank you so much. You know, you have to add a little bit of personality to our pictures. Um, I'm Chef Amira, and I am a native, like two, three generations, native California. My family's been here three generations, and I'm a private chef and a caterer. I mostly cater to, most of my clients are celebrities, but I enjoy most actually connecting with um, with my with my, my people, who my supporters, and I create events, a lot of goddess events. But my main focus on food is really food and the intersection, how it deals with or how it heals the mind, body, and spirit. Um, I love amazing food, but at the end of the day, you have to look at really what prana is going to be in that food. Otherwise, your body is using more energy than it's getting from the food, and that's when disease steps in. So that's what I focus a lot on. If you go to my page, I'm all about the herbs. I'm all about you really tapping into and understanding how the body works and also some amazing food. So um, that's a little bit about me. And I'm going to pass it back off to you, Jensen. Thank you. Thanks to all of you. All right. And everybody in the audience here, if you're listening on the podcast, I uh, uh, hope this is an important topic for you. I think we sometimes in the restaurant industry, especially spin off our axis when we focus so much on the food as just a transactional vehicle for the business itself. And we're always trying to understand how do you tell your best story? The story that is so truly you, so uniquely, uni, uniquely, excuse me, you, that it cannot be co-opted, that it's, it lives within you and it's expressed in every moment, every interaction, every touch on the plates, uh, when people get to feel what you feel and what potentially you felt for generations or felt connected or disconnected to culture and heritage. So I want to really highlight that throughout. Uh, Elle, I want to have you jump in just a couple minutes, uh, lay some groundwork for us. Uh, tell us a little bit about the idea of heritage. You know, we're working on this uh, campaign with you over the next month. We're going to be seeing hundreds of pieces of content from so many uh, talented and dedicated individuals across the industry, across the country and uh, heritage was at the was at the center of this. So break it down for us a little bit. What does what does heritage mean to you that you would build an entire campaign around it? Sure, that's great. Um, first of all, humble to be here. Thank you, everybody, for for taking an hour of your time to have this conversation with us. And before I dive into the heritage piece, I think it makes sense to back up a little bit about what in the weeds is and how it came to be to be this platform to be able to even have these conversations. So In the Weeds was a project I was working on pre-pandemic, January 2020 is when I really started diving into it. I was traveling all over the world um, doing these culinary activations with uh, Marriott Rewards members or Audi key holders, managing huge budgets, realizing through their consumer loyalty rewards that a lot of folks just wanted access to us, to hospitality professionals, to chefs and bartenders and winemakers. And um, every time I came home, when I was doing my, you know, expense report or looking at my budgets, I'm like, wow, 
they're spending a ton of money to get access to us, but there's still such a disparity of wealth within the industry at large. There's got to be a way for um, a nonprofit to be able to still host these events, but use some of that budget to sort of fix some of the problems that we were all talking about, um, how to manage the wage gap between front of the house and back of the house and how to get folks health care and how to give them a more balanced life with two days off, how to talk about night care for, for working moms in the industry, which are all conversations that I had at all these festivals with all the adults. But once everybody went back to their own world, we're fixing dishwashers, whether that's humans or, or machines. Um, and there was really no space. So I saw In the Weeds as a, a, a avenue or a medium to be able to um, start doing the work of making change and fixing some of these problems versus continuing to talk about them. So when the pandemic started in March, I, like everyone else in this industry, as a consultant, saw my entire calendar clear um, for the rest of the year. And at that time, no one had pandemic clauses in their contracts. So it was considered an act of God. And I had to take a step back and say, okay, what can I do to make sure I get out of this thing alive, physically, financially, and mentally stable? Um, And I started cooking again. And I moved back to my hometown in coastal Massachusetts and really... Um, grew in the weeds to be a national public 501c3 charity um, while I also was reconnecting with my culinary roots um, here in New England, which was, um, I think my therapist is, is probably has two other therapists to deal with me through this project. But um, as, you know, in the weeds started to grow, our mission is to champion the physical, financial, and mental health of the hospitality professional. Uh, physically, we have partnered with local state marketplaces to be able to offer low-cost, low no-cost health care uh, to hospitality professionals. Um, financially, we saw that GoFundMe was really the only safety net um, March, April, May, and did a lot of research and realized that It's not very transparent Um, platform. If you raise over $20,000, you do get a 1099, which is not explicitly clear. And a lot of restaurant folks wouldn't know how to navigate that 1099 on their taxes. And we also saw a lot of restaurant owners um, use those funds that were earmarked for staff to pay their liquor bill so they didn't get posted. So there were protections really on either side. So we launched a white label crowdfunding platform um, that individuals can use similar to GoFundMe. And we also saw that so many other awesome projects were popping up that weren't able to get funding because they didn't have a 501c3 attached to them. So we found partners in Chicago, the Chad Project, um, Lip Service, which is Chad McCoy's program to uh, give scholarships to BIPOC women to bridge the language gap in the service industry and just these, all these other awesome projects that we could fiscally sponsor. And then the mental health piece, of course, everybody's talking about it. We created a series of low-cost, no-cost um, workshops called Getting Out of the Weeds with the Chad Project. So we the last year to really identify um, access to information and support. But um, with all of these awesome things, we need funding, right? We needed a marquee 
fundraising event that we knew we could generate enough financial resources to support all of this work through 2022, which is how we came to be with the Heritage Dinner. Uh, It was to be an in-person event at the Aspen Food and Wine Classic last week with the rise of the Delta variant. Um, We just didn't feel it was responsible to put two or 300 people in a room and ask them to wear masks for a seven-course tasting menu. But the central piece of this Heritage Dinner was... A lot of folks in the industry who are either executive chefs or CDCs, um, they traditionally cook other people's food. Um, Some of them have the luxury of being able to push the envelope a little bit and have their own food come through on those menus. So when we were inviting chefs to participate, we wanted to make sure that, yes, they were going to have a great time with us in Aspen, but they had the opportunity to create a, a dish that spoke to their heritage and be able to tell their story in the room full of people, which traditionally with these dinners, everybody's just kept in the back and then comes out for a round of applause at the end. And as we were diving into this idea of heritage, I was able to go on this journey myself over this past six to eight months cooking coastal New England again, and just started having these thoughts and wanting to have these conversations with people all over the country of, you know, what does heritage mean to you and how is it changing? So in cooking again, I'm always asked, what type of food do you cook and where did you get your training? Um, Always. Those are the first two questions that I get asked when I'm with a group of people. And the reality is, is I grew up in an Irish Catholic family in the south of Boston, and we also have very strong ties to bootlegging in the fishing industry. Um, you can't really say that in a, in a group of people um, and, and explain exactly what that means. Um, so there's also this whole idea with the rise of cooking shows, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to be an aunt for the first time in a couple months is my niece or nephew um, or non-gender conforming niece or nephew, um, are they going to have a different experience and look at the heritage of their food differently now that we all have traveled and explored this migratory eating that transcends chowder and Sunday roast, which is what I grew up um, eating. So, yeah, I think it's just going to be a really great conversation to hear from from everyone else. And I'm humbled that you're here. And I'm I'm really looking forward to being inspired by what everybody's stories are. Thanks for that, Elle. Thanks for the work and uh, allowing us to be really, uh, really honored and excited about this. All right. Uh, here's how we're going to kind of go from here. I want to just take like 90 seconds for each of the panelists to give us high level thoughts on on heritage for you. What is that? What does that really mean and represent? Uh, just like kind of your quick take on it. I want to get set the table so we kind of all understand where our where our frame of reference is. Uh, and then we'll go back around the, the table and be able to talk about the foods very specifically. Love to hear what the foods are, where they came from. Was it cooking with with grandma on a, on a stool how, how did these come about? Did you rediscover them? I'm, I'm fascinated, and I think everybody is fascinated to hear how we find our way into connecting with heritage through food. So uh, let's, get, let's get some high-level thoughts. Let's, uh, let's set the tone for the room. Uh, we'll go back around. Knight, you want to jump? 
Sure. Um, so um, what I do at the restaurant is solely dedicated to my heritage. Um, how I define heritage are basically the experiences and stories that were passed down from my ancestors um, that basically just, you know, helped define my identity. Um, it's also the value and pride that I hold dearly that makes me who I am. Um, you know, it's the inspiration in a lot of things I do. Um, being able to celebrate my roots and my ancestors through food, music, and the space that I have now, um, it's been quite a journey and an honor. Yeah, thanks for that. And I appreciate that music is a part of that. I'm, I'm very interested in how that plays out from obviously the, the full sensory experience at a restaurant. So I'll probably, I'll probably jump in and figure out uh, what is on the playlist when you're mentioning some of the dishes a little bit later. So that's good. I appreciate that. Uh, Katie, for you, high-level thinking, heritage, put it through your lens. What does it mean to you? Well, I grew up in Minneapolis, Minnesota at a time where there were no Asians. So we were completely ashamed and embarrassed of our culture because we were surrounded by all Norwegian and Swedish people, no offense, but uh, nobody looked like us. Nobody talked like us. Nobody ate the food that we ate. My mom would put, you know, char siu bao in my lunchbox and I'd be completely mortified. So it took me many years to finally come to terms with my... Um, you know, shame around my heritage. And it all happened through food. And uh, I'll tell the story later, but my mother was an extraordinary chef and restaurateur in her own right. But the way that love was expressed in our family was always through food. So if you came home with all A's, you get, you know, um, fish and black bean sauce. But if you got all B's, you get pork tomaine. So um, I just realized how precious the memories are to me that my mother, despite all these incredible odds and what she endured, she always expressed her love through food. So everything I do now is to honor her culinary legacy through food and, and everything she's taught me, both in the kitchen and outside of the kitchen. But um, I feel like it's a way to connect generations. It's a way to understand our future by uh, looking at our past and examining our present all in the kitchen. Food as reward currency. Uh, I have two young boys, I'm already thinking about how I need to up my my game when it comes to the foods that they get based on reward system. I like that a lot. And uh, I know this is going to come up more and more because it's my reality for sure. Uh, when I was growing up, and sounds like Katie for you too, it wasn't cool to be Asian or Hapa like myself. You know, I'm sometimes thankful that I was white enough that you you couldn't always tell that I was Japanese and the scary foods that uh, sometimes got packed in my lunch. I completely feel you on that. And I know a lot of people have that where we're, we're fighting for our heritage now because we kind of shunned it a little bit and took on the white bread American approach because it was safer. So thanks for, uh, thanks for sharing that. Andrea, for you, heritage, how do you think about it? What's, what's your uh, quick take? Heritage is, um, uh, uh, a heavy but also very bright and um, beautiful thing for me. Um, it was almost abstract for me for a while. Um, uh, I know I'm new to this platform, so I, uh, I'm actually adopted. I'm originally from the Andes of Venezuela and uh, a super nice uh, white American 
uh, family adopted me. And so, um, you know, I go to uh, Latin American uh, heritage uh, was somewhat limited, but my exposure to indigenous heritage was almost non-existent. Um, so I actually started exploring that myself, you know, here and there when I was, um, when I was a kid and a young adult. Uh, but I really, really started uh, down quite a, uh, uh, a self-discovery path through cuisine, through indigenous cuisine, uh, when I was in my late 20s. Um, so it's been, uh, it's been quite the journey of, um, you know, watching uh, uh, other, um, you know, indigenous chefs do what they do, uh, Latino, Latina chefs do what they do, um, even... Uh, as dry as it sounds, uh, flipping through books, um, everything from, um, you know, food anthropology, you know, based in uh, Latin America, specifically South America, all the way to, you know, what, uh, what kind of cookbooks are other uh, BIPOC chefs putting out and just kind of being able to connect the dots and uh, see what, what was up, you know, with different regions, especially my, my region of the world, of course. And, um, yeah, heritage has just been this um, this really really awesome uh, self journey and expo uh, exploration, uh, for lack of a better better description. Um, and of course, for me, it's all all come through through food. Yeah, that's quite the uh, the personal uh, of discovery for sure, and I appreciate that. I haven't spoken to you a lot about that as well, uh, Kunzi. For you, what? Uh, What's what's the strategy? What's the big thinking around uh, around heritage? How do we uh, how do we better represent heritage through food? Well, Chef Katie, just everything she said just resonated with me so much. I look at food as language. It's a love language, and it speaks not only about your heritage, about the deep love and history you have for your for your culture, and it speaks to other cultures. Um, and if you don't mind, I'm gonna, you know, Chef Mimi invited me um, to this panel because I wrote this letter to my mother that I think very eloquently explains it. I'm only gonna read um, one paragraph because it's quite long and it was made into a video and it's in my um, link in bio. But I I think this really sums it up for all of us, even though it's about my heritage. Um, I think it really explains, um, you know, what we've touched on, the shame we may have had for it, and then the love that we have for it later in life when we learn to appreciate it. And the letter is to my mother. Um, but in Vietnamese, we call the land, you know, the motherland and in other languages. So this letter was to my mother as an apology. And it says, I am sorry for the times I was embarrassed when you spoke Vietnamese in public because racist people made fun of us. Now, remember, I grew up in Iowa. Your mother tongue is beautiful, intricate and deeply romantic. The Vietnamese language and culture with all its intonations and poetic phrases make it truly the Italy of Southeast Asia. For the times I was angry at you for not being at the school Christmas pageants or bake sales, I am so very sorry. I know now that you were simply exhausted and felt ashamed for not being like the American mothers who never welcomed you into their circles. For all the times as a child that I refused to eat your homemade Vietnamese meals and instead asked for boxed mac and cheese, and for the time I allowed that ignorant schoolmate to make fun of our house because it smelled weird after you cooked my favorite pork pork belly dish, the ka. I am so sorry. 
Whenever I meet a hipster in Hollywood and they ask where they can find the best faux, I chuckle with dismay and my answer is always the same. It's pronounced pho and the best place to find it is at my mom's house. Every time I see an overpriced vegetable at Whole Foods, I smile to myself because you were doing farm to table since day one. The conversations we've had as your fingers so expertly fold and roll that perfect spring roll, gai guan, it's embedded in my memory. I miss your home-cooked meals, rich with fish sauce and shrimp paste and your even richer storytelling. So that, I feel, is what food is to me and how it represents heritage. It's one of the most powerful things I've heard in a while. Uh, it spoke to me on a lot of levels, and I'm sure a lot of people felt that for sure. So thank you for sharing that. And actually, uh, I think I see Sophie in the audience. We need to we need to publish that uh, piece on our, on our blog, Quincy. Well, you and I have a lot to talk about at this. Thank you so much for sharing that. I really appreciate it. I don't really want to move on, but we're going to move on because uh, that was really great. Thank you for that. Uh, Amira, for you, high level, what are we thinking about heritage? Uh, well, heritage, when it comes to me and my ancestry, um, goodness, is very broad because understanding that my ancestors were the backbone to this country and built up from every cuisine. You know, you had some of the the slaves that were actually sent to French school to come back and create these intricate dishes and how it played on me, actually, and how, like, in my family, we ate everything, actually. So even I started making egg rolls when I was eight years old. So although I embrace my culture and I've never been ashamed of my culture, I've always ventured outside of my culture and I've embraced other cultures in my food. Like I mostly I don't mostly even cook my culture. I'm always cooking something else just because it's quite honestly, food is the one great food and music are the two things that can um, connect people across, you know, cultures, across what, you know, that's the one unifying force. The two unifying forces that we do have are music and food. And I've been grateful enough to like have had an extended palate when I was young and to actually have a mother. Like I was actually cooking meals for my, by the time my mom got home, cause I was what, one of those, we call them latchkey kids. You would walk home with the key was in my backpack though, from the time I was eight years old. So when she got home from work, I actually would have food already prepared. I was cooking at a very young age. And so, um, yeah, I'm grateful, you know, just my heritage. I like to even look at it as just really being innovators. Like my, uh, my ancestors were always innovators and I'm grateful enough. One of my gifts is to innovate in the kitchen, regardless of what culture or what heritage I'm cooking from. As everyone can tell, this is, this is such a powerful and galvanizing topic. The idea, the idea of heritage, there's also so much deep connection and, and a lot of trauma, as I think several of us has, have mentioned that, it's hard when you are other to, to be able to find where you kind of fit in. And uh, we spent a lot of time trying to, to chameleon our way into whatever circles we deem or have been deemed appropriate for us. And heritage is, is kind of a way to break out of that while finding the, the sameness in our, in our shared stories of, of culture, I think is, I think is really great. All right. It's also a very heavy topic. Let's talk about some food. I'm excited to hear about food. I made sure that I was well-fed because I have mistakenly gone into some of these on an empty stomach. 
So I'm very excited to learn about some new uh, some new dishes. Before we get into that, I just want to reset the room real quick. We're about half an hour into this conversation. We're going to go about an hour. We might let it spill just a little bit over if we're all vibing and feeling good about it. Uh, this is a recorded room, and the recording will be on Best Served Podcast platforms from Anchor, Apple, Google, anywhere you get your podcasts this upcoming Friday at noon Eastern time for anybody here in Clubhouse, for anybody that is listening to this post-recording, make sure you get over to Clubhouse so you can join in on these conversations. We will open up hand-raising because we want to get some of the audience involved. We're going to hear some foods that represent the heritage here in a little bit and then also uh, take some topics and popcorn around a little bit, uh, open dialogue with uh, with all the speakers as well. Um, throughout this and uh yeah again appreciate sierra kelly and the uh foodie nerds hq club for uh for hosting us today and uh, we also host rooms in our own club best served fmb creatives uh, if you ever want to go over there and check out what we're up to and uh, make sure click on the uh, icons of all of the uh, speakers check them out connect with them obviously they're out there trying to be sounding boards for their culture for their heritage for their people so scroll down if they're on twitter if they're on instagram you can connect there there's back channel here this is all about making more and more connections you can always reach out to me through any of those channels as well all right let's uh cambodian let's start with uh with some cambodian food night i am fascinated to hear a a dish that for you really represents your culture the uh the must have the story behind it and then i i want to hear the playlist what what is on the uh, on the playlist when uh, when you're serving that dish? <laughs> um, there's various songs that I like, but if you just go on Spotify and search for um, Sensesimot or Rosericitia, you'll find a slew of surf rock, um, psychedelics, Cambodian music. Um, we also have the Yamai playlist if you do a search on Spotify as well. But it's just so fun to cook with. Um, like growing up, like my dad would always have Cambodian rock and roll playing in the background. Um, so we were talking about what food represents Cambodian. Uh, well, one thing that I learned how to cook was um, it's not a certain it's not a dish, but a certain recipe. The base for a lot of Cambodian dishes it's our mirepoix, um, which is a blend of like lemongrass, galanga, shallots turmeric and lime leaf and this is the earliest food memory I've had with my mom we would sit on the floor with the mortar and pesto and then she would allow me to like cut the lemongrass chop the garlic um growing up my parents didn't really speak much about their trauma surviving the genocide in Cambodia so cooking with my mom was a way for her to open up about her youth um, growing up in Cambodia and maybe mention something about the war um so Cooking Cambodian food is always special to me in that sense. Um, I started my pop-up cooking a dish called Kateo Phnom Penh, and it's still on the menu now. But it's basically a dish that my mom would always make on the weekends, and we would have friends and family come over. She would make a big pot of this pork um, broth where you simmer pork bones for eight hours. You skim off like the scum, and you add in dried calamities, burnt onions, um, and daikon and you ladle that broth over rice noodles and then you have like this platter of different types of meats and garnish that you can top with 
Um, so that dish right there is always very special to me, especially when I have it at the restaurant and just being able to share that story with the guests here. Um, 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 just very special to me. Tell me the name of the dish again. I'm going to have to have you spell a couple of these things for me because I need this in my life. So I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll plan the trip to Oakland for sure. Uh, but at least I at least need to, I, I understand the, uh, the, the base of Cambodian food just enough to be able to cook something at home. Like I <laughs> mentioned, we're all cooking at home. Uh, tell me the dish again. Yeah, so the noodle soup is called Goitheo Phnom Penh. It's pronounced, I mean, it's spelled K-U-I. Uh, T-E-A-V, and then it's named after the capital, Phnom Penh, in Cambodia. I like, I like everything that you're saying. And I appreciate, <laughs> too, that you're, like, it's, it's a story, uh-huh. then it's a dish, then it's a vibe with the playlist. Like, you're trying to, to create the, the comprehensive experience. Have you, have you gone and had these dishes in, in Cambodia? Is that, I know sometimes uh, families that were, you know, had to, to take refugee status, sometimes mm-hmm. don't go back because there's so much trauma. What's mm-hmm. been the experience of Cambodia, the, the country and, and the people there for you? Oh yeah, I have this yearning of going to Cambodia since I was in high school, just because I wanted to learn more about my family's history. And I keep on telling people, oh, yeah, I'm going back to Cambodia, but I've never been there. I was actually born in um, the refugee camp in Thailand. But the first time I went to Cambodia was at least 10 years ago. And when I, you know, got there, everything was so, so familiar to me. The people, the language, like the food I saw, um, I fell in love right away. Um, I just felt so connected to that place and met my relatives for the first time, whom I've only heard of. Um, and since then, I've gone back to Cambodia every year. Um, the only time I did go was during the pandemic. Oh, I see you're making a yearly pilgrimage. I, I appreciate that, night. Thank you so, so much for sharing. And I have so much respect for that, that journey back. Uh, my uh, Obachan, my grandmother from Kyoto, Japan, uh, never took any of the boys in the family to, to Japan. Uh, and it had a lot to do with the patriarchy that her family came from. And she passed away recently. So we've been talking about needing to take a trip, my brother and I. And I, it's, it's heavy. It feels clumsy and awkward sometimes, but I, I can imagine from what you just shared that once you get there and immerse yourself, it's just life-changing for sure. L, jump in here. Tell us about some of these South Boston, Catholic, Irish, bootlegging, fishing dishes. I feel like we all obviously know what those are, so hit us with something that represents that uh, journey for you, that heritage for you. For sure. So this is my first time living back here in 20 years. When I was 18, it was like, get me out of this stupid little town. And that's what I did. And so coming back has definitely been a homecoming and exploring my heritage at large, but also through food. Um, And I had sort of an aha moment last November my family were on a text chain and they're like, okay, what do you guys want for Sunday supper? And I just went in and I was like, I kind of want Easter dinner. And everyone's like, yeah, that sounds good. And we didn't even have to talk about it. My mom just immediately knew, okay, I'm going to get a ham. I'm going to make Del Monaco potatoes and we'll have something green with rolls. And about a week later, I was like, wow, I didn't even say ham dinner. I just said Easter dinner. Um, and how, you know, that's a very traditional Irish Catholic 
um, meal to have at dinner, which I think migratorily, um, other families that celebrate Easter that come from this heritage looks very different than a Greek Easter dinner. So that was sort of my moment in, in digging into heritage. And as I've been here, I'm realizing that there is actual like New England cuisine is a thing and it has a lot to do with preserving a lot of the Irish immigrants that came to Boston. Uh, you know, we see those signs in pubs, help wanted, Irish need not apply. So we had to be very resourceful. Um, I crack up that the Wahlburgers who opened their, the Wahlberg family, who opened the Wahlburgers put uh, government cheese on their menu for their for their flat patties, uh, because a lot of families here did rely on government resources for food when they first got here. Um, so heritage for me on the plate, I'm realizing more and more is extremely local, extremely seasonal, um, and obsessively preserved. So. We have pickled ramps in our Bloody Marys at Christmas. And right now with the seasonal shift, it's, oh my gosh, the first frost could be here at any moment. We have to can all these tomatoes and um, what are we gonna do with all these eggplants to make sure that we have um, our fresh local produce through the winter, which I guess we don't really have to think like that anymore, but it's still very much ingrained in how we eat. Um, I am going foraging for periwinkles tomorrow to have with pasta uh, for dinner and quahog season is just starting. And so we'll go clamming and and make uh, stuffed quahogs that will be in the freezer, which we call again, attached to um, uh, holidays, uh, Christmas clams. So. For me, you know, growing up, the, the joke was we are a little drinking village with a fishing problem. Um, but I think when you when I think of New England and, and, and the heritage that comes through on my plate, it's very seasonal. It's extremely hyper local. Um, I have the luxury of having relationships with my lobsterman and my scallop guy and I just put a striped bass chowder on a menu for a beer dinner and I texted three people, hey, I need, you know, three three stripers off the boat on October 1st. And it's like, okay, I got you. And I'll be able to run down and meet them at the pier, which is such a treat and it's such a luxury um, for me to, as I'm going back into cooking professionally. But I think, again, with the New England Irish Catholic uh, it, it growing up eating that way uh, was at the time like frustrating for me because I knew that the city was so close and we got McDonald's twice a year once on our birthdays and after our annual physical if we had a but only if we had a shot um, that was like our treat so it's been really neat being back here um, and, and eating this way and being able to cook this way um, has been fantastic. Oh, and also in case anybody was wondering, I immediately Googled what the word is for your sibling's child that's non-gender conforming and it's a nibbling, <laughs> which I thought was super cute. Well, you know what you know what I like? Two things. Well, I like a lot of what you said, but two things really jumped out at me. One, you don't speak like you're from the south of Boston until you start talking about food. 
and then scallops and different words start to come out. So I really appreciate how you like get right back into the, uh, the regional jargon. And second, I literally have some Yukon potatoes that I was like, what am I going to do with these? And now some cheesy Delmonico gratin type, right? That's what those are. Isn't that what they are? Yeah. Like it's, cheesy potatoes, gratin. I'm, that's what I'm making with those. So thank you for that. Yeah, they are. I think they came from a restaurant. I don't know. I think the restaurant was New York or, or I don't. That, that's what we call I'm them I'm going to go with Delmonico like, Steakhouse, the oldest restaurant uh, in the country, may, uh, probably, is, the, is where that came from. Or somebody stole that name because that's uh, the prestige they were going for. But to be totally honest with you, Jensen, we probably don't call them Delmonico potatoes. I call them that now because I have a different language of being so heavily steeped in the culinary industry, which is so interesting to think that a lot of these dishes that speak to a lot of people's heritage have been like co-opted and branded and repackaged um, as we have seen the rise of like food media, which is an interesting point. I'm going to go back and ask my family what we call them. Yeah, I appreciate it. I mean, cheesy potatoes, probably something simple like that. There's just uh, lots of like cream and butter and cheese and paprika and black pepper. Yep, I'm into it. I'll do yep. all of those things. It's going it's going on the whiteboard downstairs. Perfect. Uh, appreciate appreciate that. <laughs> and the co-opting I think is coming up a lot especially you, you see that uh, as I mentioned when I was growing up and it sounded like several of the other panelists here being being of any Asian descent was not cool yet. Uh, and now at least in food culture it's it's hyper cool and and, and you see that playing out where now it's Whose heritage is it? Who has access to it is a fascinating question. I don't know that we're going to unpack that today, but this is an ongoing dialogue for sure. So, Katie, uh, have you jump in here. Tell us a story. What's a food item that really connects you back to mom? Is it a, is, is it a dish that was on the menu? Uh, what is that uh, connection? This is like Sophie's Choice. There's just so many of my mother's famous dishes. It's so hard to select one, but um, this is also a very funny story, so I'll share it. So Peking duck, obviously uh, uh, quite a specialty. Um, and we were growing up in Minneapolis, Minnesota, where there were very few Asians at the time. Um, and as many of you may know, to prepare Peking duck properly, you have to um, basically insert a bicycle pump in the cavity of the duck to expand its stomach so that the skin separates from the fat. So you have this uh, wonderful, you know, delicious, greasy, crispy skin, right? But then you have to um, hang it in the window for like 12 hours, okay, to dry. Uh, so all these kids in Minnesota would ride their bikes up and down our driveway these swedish and norwegian children and they'd look up at our window and see like ducks hanging in the window and then they'd scream and then ride away <laughs> so i was another thing to be completely embarrassed by um growing up but you know it's it's listen it's there's nothing like it it's so delicious and um so it's a whole long story. But what ended up happening is um, I quit my job as a senior VP of, at Fox in marketing and uh, became a chef under my mother's tutelage. Um, and then when she was diagnosed with cancer, I decided that I would make every single recipe 
uh, from her original cookbook. So I got to, you know, the poultry section and I happened to make friends with that big Hollywood producer. And she was like, oh, could you come over and um, show us how to make Peking duck? And I was like, um, okay. So uh, I had my mother on the phone um, and uh, she lived in Seattle. I had her on the phone, on speakerphone, and she's, you know, telling me how to make the Peking duck step by step. And she's like, now make sure that you close the end of the duck very securely, you know, just trust it very securely. Okay. So I'm like, okay, okay, okay. So I did it with her. I, it, it was good. And then uh, a couple of weeks later, I, I show up at uh, this person's home with all her friends. And it's almost like I had my mother's voice in my head, preparing the duck. Uh, and the people were like going crazy, like, they watch me take a bicycle pump out from under the table and start, you know, blowing this duck up. And they're like, oh my God. Anyway, I think it was the champagne along with nerves. I didn't quite, you know, tie it up tightly enough. So I start inflating the tummy and um, the duck starts to fart. And then every time I push down on the bicycle pump, it, it farts louder and louder. And the <laughs> pretty soon the entire crowd was just laughing hysterically but i pulled it off and it was uh very delicious and i always think of that memory because it started out being a dish i was so embarrassed by that i ultimately became very proud of but i really had to um you know uh, go on my own culinary journey to actually claim it as my own i started to like mute and unmute applause as you were starting to say what your mom was about to say because i knew exactly where you were going with that having made peking duck plenty of times i've seen that scenario it's one of those things we do to like a new cook like here let's have them do the peking duck and you know you're you're blowing it out or sometimes they got so nervous they were pumping so hard they tear through the skin and and i've seen those scenarios and then hand rubbing them with maltose and letting them drip dry so i appreciate i appreciate that story all the way katie real quick what was the name of a restaurant or restaurants that your mother had i'm guessing they're not around anymore but i'd love to love to know uh they actually still exist in minneapolis it's Amazing. a chain of 50 restaurants it's called leanne chen but just because it's a, such an inspiring story she immigrated making 50 cents an hour as a seamstress and never went to high school and she built an empire of um over 50 locations which still exist today that is incredible i don't know why i felt compelled to ask that but that's even better so thank you thank you for that uh andrea for you what's a dish that uh, that connects you back to your indigenous uh, culture. It's obviously been quite the journey of discovery. What's something that makes you feel the most connected? Um, it, I, for me, I would say there are two dishes, and they're both potatoes. And one is just really simply roasted, um, uh, like fingerling potatoes, especially if I get them from Strohara Farms here in Colorado. Um, you know, with some good olive oil, you know, finishing salt, maybe some pepper, usually not. Um, and I'm a happy camper. I can sit down in the fall and have a bowl of roasted potatoes and be beyond content. Um, but a more, much more chefy dish um, that I created is uh, my purple potato gnocchi. And um, for, for me, that connects me to my indigeneity because it the 
So, you know, I didn't utilize uh, chicken eggs or anything like that for a binder. Um, you know, no all-purpose flour, no wheat, no gluten, nothing like that. Just organic red quinoa, some, you know, potatoes, uh, purple potatoes. And um, instead of boiling them, I roast them. And so they, they almost look like a, like a purple tater tot, to tell you the truth. Um, and, and so that in and of itself sort of starts this conversation with diners um, and and that's, you know, food is really the common thread that we all have. We all need it. We all, you know, have origins with it. We all have a history with it. And it's, it's just such this, it's just such a powerful, a powerful thing, uh, especially using it for uh, education or, or uh, to tell a story or communicate, you know, as, as indigenous people, we, we're, we're storytellers, whether that be in a verbal language or a written language um, you know, or with food. And that's why these, uh, these original foods and these, um, uh, cooking techniques and everything that goes along with it to us. And so, um, and then, you know, of course, uh, with tomatoes being, uh, a crop that originated, uh, in our, our part of the world as well, I'll make like a, a smoky tomato sauce, but it's nothing like an Italian, uh, tomato sauce, and I always tell diners that ahead of time. And said, so "This is not, this is not your grandmother's tomato sauce. This is not what you get in restaurants. This is, uh, this is something very different. You know, it's, it's smoked with, um, you know, lo local wood, local hardwood, and, um, you know, I, I roast chilies, usually poblanos. Um, now that it's has chili season, it'll, it'll be that for a short period of time." You know, I take all of these, you know, ingredients, these crops that are originated uh, in the Andes and uh, elsewhere in uh, Latin America, um, even, even Mesoamerica sometimes, just uh, Turtle Island, we call it, um, and um, uh, just make this very unique dish, but in an elevated way and the conversations that I've had just by making something that... Um, you know, it comes from my roots as a human being, and uh, it it has really been amazing over the years. Um, you know, serving at, at various dinners to various demographics, and uh, uh, to to go into all of those really awesome conversations would would just take too much time. But for for me personally, especially as um, you know, an an adopted kid, you know, now being an adult and um, you know, moving down this, this path, the way that I have, you know, and, uh, having these moments of self-discovery, it's, um, it's, it's just so, so satisfying and, um, so impactful because it, it really does. It can... Um, and so I've, I've never been able to go back. Uh, and, and I most likely uh, never will. Um, 
as, as much as I would like to. It's, there's just a certain safety element there that's, uh, that does exist, but um, it's uh, a, a lot of these issues, it's, I'm, I'm serving myself on a plate and, you know, people say, you know, oh, I wear my heart on my sleeves, like, you know, I'm serving you my, my roots, my soul, my, you know, everything that I've got on a plate. Um, and uh, it's, uh, it's one of those things that really does connect me to uh, a land that I've never been to, which is uh, odd to say, and it's difficult to explain to people, but um, and you know, it also connects me to my, to my ancestors as well. And it's, it's just a really unique experience. And, and I just, uh, I really enjoy and lo really love sharing it with, uh, with other folks. Andrea, we're going to have to talk some more. I was fascinated when you said pre-colonial and not using egg as binder. And you mentioned the books early on, just even where you even find reference points to be able to understand the ingredients and techniques. And that's a, that's a whole nother topic. You and I are going to talk about that. I appreciate you. Uh, I appreciate you sharing that. And uh, anything that's, that resembles a purple tater tot, you count, count me in for that. <laughs> I'm, 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 I am there. I am here for that. Appreciate that. Uh, Quincy for you, what's, uh, what's the dish? What's the dish that, uh, you know, maybe it's, it's the dish that, uh, you mentioned mom, you know, making, and, and maybe it was the dish that had all the fish sauce in it that uh, made the house smell, but now you, you embrace that. Uh, what's, the, what's the dish that connects you most to, to your uh, Vietnamese heritage? Well, Jensen, um, I'm Vietnamese, and people may or may not know this, but our country, it, it's very much like Italy in terms of like where you travel, the food changes. It's very regional, um, and it, it's a small country. It's the shape of a dragon. But wherever you go, it could be like up north, it's much colder, so it's pho. I'm sure all of you know what pho is. But if you travel to the south, then you get rice dishes, pork dishes, noodle dishes, because we were also influenced by the French um, and the Chinese. So uh, we have very, very unique dishes. My favorite is, I did mention the spring roll, um, but we, that you can make it several different ways with red meat, with seafood, but my favorite is with sea bass. So the way this is good, and the prep time takes more than the cooking time. Um, so that's the Vietnamese food and the language. We make everything so much longer than it needs to be, and it's all made with love and romance. Um, so the the it's pronounced um, gọi quan, which is uh, the roll, and then ganung is the baked fish, um, and it's a whole baked uh, sea bass. Um, lots and lots of seasoning, um, garlic. We we love garlic and we love um, shallots in our culture. Um, so there's tons of scallions. Um, you cook the vermicelli rice noodles separately because that's added to the rolls. Of course, you made the rice paper rolls. Um, and we don't do garnishes in Vietnam because our country, you know, is a third world country. We went through a lot of war. So if you see anything on the side, it's you're going to eat it. It's not a garnish. Um, so on the side, you have everything from, you know, seedless cucumbers cut into strips. Everything's cut into strips so it can roll well. Um, you We use a lot of pineapple um, in, lieu, in lieu of like things like tomatoes, right? We use pineapple or fruit like um, uh, Fuji apples or you can also use... Um, 
peeled uh, plantain um, peels, like we shred it. So very unique, um, green or red leaf lettuce for the sides, mint, we always use mint. Um, and then we use something called, rep- it, it's a it's a fresh meat le- leaf, but I don't, you'd have to see it, it's kind of purplish. Um, and then coriander leaves and then dipping sauces. So I did mention those before and we, our culture is known for fish sauce. That is our, that's our jam. Um, it's nukmam and we make it with that's a whole separate thing you make so the fish sauce is made with rice vinegar uh, with lime and sugar Um, and then if you want to really roll deep we do something with the fermented anchovy fish sauce it's called nam um, it's mum nam and it smells and it looks really funky but it tastes so good so that's a true way you use this dipping sauce but for those of you who have a lighter palate then the fish sauce is fine um, basically you bake the sea bass and you stuff it uh, with all of this good stuff and you can also use um, the I believe it's the wheat noodles as well the clear noodles instead of vermicelli the vermicelli is made separately and kept cold um, and you bake this for an hour you stuff it and it is so delicious but the favorite part of eating this is the process of making it so everything is set out on the table the fish is put in the middle and in our culture we don't do separate plates right we all have bowls but we share it's all family style sharing so you dip the rice paper in water to make it soft and then you always start with the bigger pieces of the garnish the lettuce and then you put the you know the fruit the the noodles on there and then you put the fish last now if you cook there's different ways to bake the fish a lot of people like to cook it um, covered in aluminum foil so that the insides get really soft and you just you know break off parts of the sea bass and put it in and you roll it but I like to eat the crispy skin. So the way I do it is I, you know, cook it without the aluminum foil. So the skin gets nice and crunchy and crispy and I eat it, um, you know, with the skin. And the trick to rolling it, and we always compare, like, who's the best roller? It's rolled in four parts. It's kind of like a burrito. Um, but the thinner and longer and symmetric your roll is, the better you are. So we actually even got, you know, in, in an Asian family, there was six of us. They're usually big families. Um, and so when the our parents would applaud us and how well we rolled our um, that was like such a prideful thing to be able to do so yeah it was always like a competition between my siblings and I like who rolled the best uh, uh, spring roll and then you dip it in the sauce like I said you could do the fish sauce or you could do the nam um, the uh, mum sauce which is the stronger anchovy sauce completely up to you Um, but I think the act of the rolling and the gathering and the sharing is such a beautiful wonderful thing and I know in all cultures like family style sharing is different in many different ways but I think this is particular to our culture um, because we created it and has a lot of French influence a lot of Chinese influence but the roll itself and the sauces um, and all the ingredients are very very Vietnamese um, and a lot of this is not served at restaurants because it's such a big, long process. So it's something that is usually done in family homes. So you can buy, you know, shrimp rolls um, and you can buy, you know, pork rolls at the store or restaurants. But this particular dish made with sea bass um, is very particular to family gatherings and celebrations. So that, that's my favorite dish um, from our culture. And I'm happy to share the recipe with anyone if you want to DM me. I was just about to say, I, I feel like we need a roundup uh, recipe from from this. We might have to figure out how to make that happen. 
the uh, all the the best recipes from the foods that represent your heritage. Uh, I'm a big fan of that interactive style any way that you can. Uh, shout out to New Saigon in uh, in Denver, a place that uh, you'll make your own spring rolls, and uh, and often I would take people there, and I would usually roll the first one for them because there's a little bit of intimidation of rolling them, and people are tearing them apart and. And uh, it, it can get a little clumsy and, and sometimes making people feel comfortable in the interaction in the way that there is a potential cultural expectation of the way that you interact with a food. I think if we can break through some of that, it allows a little bit of comfort. You can see people when they want to order something, they don't know how to pronounce it. They feel awkward and they order the thing that they do know how to pronounce that might be the safer thing. Or they just point at the item and then it's up to for. Uh, front of house to make them feel comfortable and not feel stupid for not knowing how to pronounce it. And these are the ways that we break through culture. And I think interactive food is a great way to do that because it makes it a little bit playful. So thanks for sharing that. Uh, Amira, for you, got to know, what is uh, what is a dish for you that uh, maybe represents uh, the three generations of California that you mentioned, maybe roots further back? What's something that really represents you? Oh, well, if we're going to food that represents me, or I'm just going to say, I'll have to go with like my experience growing up. Well, my father, who was Muslim, we like bean pies. So most certainly bean pies. There's not just one thing. When it comes to my mom, like, you know, anything we had for the holidays, like sweet potato pie, greens, candy yams, um, fried chicken, all of that is, I, I still love it all. I don't eat it all the time, but when I do eat it, like it just literally, it just, I just have to take a pause and just really just, I can feel the love that went into the food. And um, like for me now, even like I, as I got older, I just really started to like, I mean, heritage means what you were passed down with. So some of the things that actually I was passed down through heritage has actually contributed to a lot of the diseases that we have so I just started to change I started to put more plants and I just started to switch things up so like for me being California just lots of just fresh fruits and veggies and um I do a lot of Asian foods actually so you know it's probably gonna be some garlic noodles or you know even just like a simple cucumber salad you know so all those things represent me I can't just choose one (laughs) talk about bean pies I think that's a food that a lot of people are not familiar with oh my gosh bean pies are amazing a lot of times I would take them because so I grew up in if you're familiar with anybody's familiar with California Los Angeles you know I grew up in my mother my father stayed in Los Angeles like around like the mid-city area and my mother, we stayed in Calabasas. So, you know, whenever I would bring like bean pies to school in Calabasas, people would look like, oh my gosh, you mean that's made out of beans? Like, yeah, it's made out of beans. Like, it's good. Like, I don't know what good. I have more for me. Like, I'm not tripping. So it's basically, I would say it's the base of like, almost if you want to think of, I would say almost kind of like a pumpkin pie or a sweet potato pie, but instead of you're using pumpkin or sweet potatoes, you're using beans, you're using white northern beans, you know, and the reason why is it because it digests well. And, you know, we just use beans. My dad, we had bean soup. It was bean everything, bean patties, like (laughs) they use beans for everything. So a bean pie, literally it tastes like, I mean, yeah, it tastes kind of like a sweet potato pie, but just with beans. So, you know, like the same flavor you're going to have, like, the spices in there, like your your nutmeg, your cinnamon, 
you know, it's going to have the butter in there. It's literally like a pie, but you use beans instead. I know it sounds crazy, but beans, um, especially if you're going to look at white beans, white beans really are very simple. So you can put them in any recipe and they can adapt to it. You see, you know, either cannellini, cannellini, however you pronounce it. You guys know what I'm talking about. Those beans that are mostly in Italian food, like those, they're in their soups and everybody has their different bean that they work with. But what I love about the white beans is really, you can, I mean, I even use it in some of like my, like more like West African dishes when I make those. Um, you could even kind of go Asian with it, although just I'm thinking texture wise. I'm not sure if that will work for me. But um, yeah, beans are very, you know, they just were, that's just what they did. Bean pies. My dad, like he actually, you know, made them. They, you know, he made them and they were sold all over Los Angeles. You know, my dad had the best bean pies. Um, so, so yes, bean pies, go get you one. And not even um, Martha Stewart tried to, um, as we talk about remaking something, you know, it was just like what Martha Stewart made the bean, like she called it a Navy bean pie. But, you know, like traditionally we've been making bean pies within the um, uh, Muslim or Islamic culture. Um, bean pies really, I would say from the 60s, it was really more of a thing of um, bean pies were made just because the sweet potatoes and the yams, um, although I've, I've done my research, they're actually good for you. Just, they were just, it was just a different way. And, um, it was at the height of when, you know, Malcolm X was here and, you know, bean pies, when it came to like the nation of Islam and being Muslim, bean pies were the thing. Like, um, when you were in the nation, they all created their jobs within, they didn't go outside. They felt that they didn't have to go outside to anybody for a job. They can create their jobs, you know, within their community. And so, you know, when you were coming in, like selling bean pies, that was a thing, bean pies and the final call paper, like those were the two things. And so, you know, bean pies, I grew up eating bean pies and I love bean pies. I used to go to LA, go get bean pies. And my dad also had a, I want to call it like almost like a kind of like a snack shop. So he had like small things like fish sandwiches and fish dinners, you know, just really classic, just the things that were like in Los Angeles, that's what mostly people wanted, but it was just done healthier. Instead of using corn, he used like, it was like a breading, like more of like a wheat breading to do the fish. Um, everything was just done fresher. He had like fish patties, which like that recipe I lost and I'm so upset I lost that recipe. It was like the best sausage that was made out of fish. It was amazing and it was spicy and um, I would go there and I would get these wings that he would do with this sauce and I would take it back into the valley. And at first people looked at it funny, but then when they taste it, they're like, wow, these are beans. Like, oh my gosh, like these fries are actually good and he didn't put this on it. And I'm like, yeah, you don't have to use those things, but you know, that's not until you're exposed to it that you would know that because that's just generally not the program. So yeah, there's your bean pie. <laughs> I absolutely love it. And and now I want to look into it more because I remember uh, bean pies that there's something different about the crust too. It like felt a little bit thinner, it's, well, a, little bean bit, pie a little bit more fakey. It's actually, uh, so. I would say how I grew up eating bean pie, it's made with whole wheat flour. So it was like, and for me, quite honestly, I like, I like the white flour crust, but I grew to love and understand why I was having, you know, the whole wheat crust. But yes, it, there is a difference on the bean pie in the crust. Understood. I could I could listen to these stories all day. We're coming up on the hour, so I do want to be respectful of, of everybody's time. Um, so let's, we got this recording. We got more work to do, all of us, to bring this idea to the forefront. Uh, I feel like we need a recipe roundup, something else, because uh, we can't let this just end with an hour and 15 minutes. So, but uh, for today's sake, uh, I want to do uh, two things. Uh, I want to go around the horn very quickly 
tell us the best place to connect with you, to find you, uh, if it's a website, if it's uh, via social media, best place to connect with you, because I know lots of people who are in the room and as well as who are listening on the uh, recorded version of the podcast are going to want to learn more about uh, all the dishes you've talked about, all the work that you're doing. So if we could have everyone do that. And then Elle wanted you to, uh, to take us out since uh, you were the one that uh, started the process to bring us together. But let's go around. Best place to find everybody night for you. You could just visit Yambai um, Instagram page, N-Y-U-M-B-A-I. Yes, do it. L for you. Uh, come back to you, L. Katie, for you, uh, best place to connect? Uh, you can follow me at Chef Katie Chin on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. And that's where uh, my live streaming cooking shows every Sunday at 5 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. Perfect. Andrea, for you. Uh, best place to find me is on Instagram, uh, Four Directions Cuisine. Uh, four is spelled out of who you are. Perfect. Quincy, where can we, uh, where can we connect with you? Instagram is the best way. It's um, already linked up in my uh, profile here, but it's also Quincy underscore Dang. Dang is my middle name. It's a real a Vietnamese name. Um, so yes, Quincy underscore Dang, or just click through on my Instagram uh, link here on the profile. All right. And Amira, I'm Catching a, a trend here. In, is it Instagram? Where Where's the best it place to connect with you? It is most certainly Instagram and at Chef Amira. Like, yeah, at Chef Amira across the board, you can literally plug into me at a few different places. But IG is where I'm mostly at. Okay. All right, Elle, uh, please take a moment. Uh, uh, take us out of this room. Thanks to everybody for all your contributions. We will be talking a lot more because this is just the kind of inspirational stuff that we need to galvanize, to learn from each other, to connect, to be able to share the vision and messages that that bring our culture and our heritage to the forefront. And it's the stories we tell that are what the food and beverage industry is built on. And sometimes we forget about that because we get so caught up in the minutia of of what we do and how we do it and why we do it and who we do it for can get lost. So thank you to all of you. That's uh, L go ahead and uh, let us know where we can connect with you and uh, with this whole campaign we have going. Sure. So my uh, cooking adventures in New England are on Instagram at L in the weeds. Um, the nonprofit work that we're doing where we pump out a lot of resources. Uh, the Instagram handle is at in the weeds us. And there's a, plethora of resources and uh, more information about the work that we do on our website, which is www.intheweeds.us. So you can find us on those platforms. Uh, I just want to say thank you, everybody, um, for being here. Um, If anybody is interested in exploring this conversation further, if you live in Brooklyn, Baltimore, or Detroit, we are doing our first Heritage Dinner on Sunday, October 10th. Uh, with some really amazing chefs, Cicely Sierra in Brooklyn, Kat Smith in Baltimore, and Nick in Chai from Fried Chicken and Caviar in Detroit. Well, you are able to pre-order a heat at home meal kit and pick it up at one of our retail partners and then tune in to have dinner with us on Sunday night, which we were able to pay the chefs $35 a kit for their time, their labor, and their food costs, and $20 of each ticket directly supports the work of In the Weeds. 
Thank you for that. And uh, yeah, for us, go check out bestsellerpodcast.com. We're in the midst of the 86-86-86 challenge. 86 articles published in 86 days, paying a writer $86 for their words. And when I say writer, I mean a dishwasher, a line cook in Kansas City, a server in Boston, a bartender in Denver. Anybody whose voice is a part of the millions of people who make up this industry need to have the opportunity to share their story. It's what's going to connect us. It's going to shift who gets to share on behalf of their own personal story, their own heritage. So you can check us out there. And uh, you'll be seeing a lot of content. Like I said, get omnipresent with us. Get over to Facebook and YouTube for video casts. Get onto the podcast platforms. Check out uh, uh, Facebook and you'll see uh, articles shared there as well. You'll see uh, a lot more of the Heritage Dinners coming up every Sunday through October. Uh, Knight's doing one as well. So just a lot of good stuff happening. Thanks to Knight, L, Katie, Andrea, Quincy, and Amira. Everybody listening, everybody who checked into the room could not do this without the community that we're building here. Thanks to all of you. And on that, I will... Uh, Go ahead and end the room. Thanks to all of you for uh, for being here. Appreciate you. Thanks for listening to the Best Served Podcast. Subscribe to our show and connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. Tune in next week to discover more unsung hospitality heroes.